Bishop Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs. And I am Jerusalem Greer. And I'm Brian Sellers Peterson. And this is the Spade Spoon Soul, a podcast about all the ways our food intersects with our faith from seed to spade to spoon. Today, we have two fabulous guests, and they are Nuria Love Parrish and Dario Harris. I'm excited to introduce Nuria. Um, Nuria Love Parrish is the founding executive director of Plainsong Farm. She's an Episcopal priest and new ministry developer. She's currently serving serving as a deputy to general convention in the Episcopal Church and is on the Diocesan Council for the Episcopal Diocese of Western Michigan. She's the author of DO 53 Resolution in 2018, urging the Episcopal Church to consider wiser use and partnerships um, around opportunities for church-owned land. And that's especially what we're going to be talking with her today about. So welcome, Nuria. Thank you. And I'm pleased to introduce Daryl Harris, who is the um, pastor of Newborn Community of Faith Church in Baltimore and currently serves as a Cynthia and Robert Lawrence Fellow at Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, where he also happens to have his PhD. And he works at the intersection of faith, land, and agriculture. And he's doing that almost for 10 years now. But we're really glad to have the two of you join us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. My goodness. Welcome to you both. This is so exciting um, and so of the moment. And so the question that we, because we're talking especially about land, um, one of the questions we like to ask our guests to start off is, where are you rooted? What place or community, where, where are you rooted to help us understand where you are um, in your space? Can you talk about that a little bit? I, I kind of feel like I have multiple roots. Uh, but but primarily, I'm, I'm rooted in Baltimore City. And so I, I live in Baltimore City. I work in Baltimore City. I pastor a church in Baltimore City, um, all on the central west side of town. Yeah, I spend a lot of my time thinking about challenges and issues of Baltimore City and, and, and hanging out with friends in Baltimore City. So that's, that's, that's kind of where I am. I mean, I, I kind of also root in... Um, the place where I grew up, which is uh, about 10 miles outside the city. It's called Severn, Maryland. So my parents are, I take my daughter there regularly. And so I spend a lot of time there. Um, Wonderful, thank you. And how about you, Noria? Where are you? Um, I'm kind of the counterpoint in some ways to Daryl because I am originally from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I couldn't live in a context more different from Las Vegas, Nevada in my current life. Um, I am rooted in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I've been here since 2000. I've lived in Michigan since 1997 and have really come to recognize how important being transplanted here and putting down roots here is to me, um, both in terms of my soul and in terms of my practice. So yeah, I would say I'm rooted in West Michigan and glad to be here. That's great. I love hearing all the different places and ways people are rooted. seems like we're starting to have a lot of roots in the Baltimore area, though, um, around this ministry, which is interesting. I love Derek. Yeah, yeah, you and Derek, and there's some other folks. We're going to... 
actually general convention of the Episcopal Church, right, is going to be in Baltimore this summer. And we are kind of beginning to scratch the surface of um, food and food and faith work there and are going to actually have an event. Um, so, Daria, we'll have to get you to, to come join us for that. So we're going to have a farm to soul event we're excited about. Okay, but that's in the future. Let's move on um, and (laughs) talk about what's going on right now. So another um, question we really like to ask our guest is, how does creation nourish your soul? Um, You know, everybody has a different connection. And for some people, it's it's bees. um, And for other people, it's hiking in nature and, and different things. So Nuria, let's start with you. How does creation nourish your soul? I, uh, when I think of creation, I think of two specific places. One of them is Plainsong Farm, which is a piece of land. Um, And Plainsong Farm really nourishes my soul because it's the place that God used to call me into my vocation um, that I'm following right now. And uh, when, when it was um, I call it Plainsong Farm now, and I've called it Plainsong Farm for as long as I've been related to it, but it has a new um, chapter of life these days as a place where many people find belonging and renewal. And um, for the first 13 years that I was related to Plainsong Farm, that was not the case. It was a place that my family lived, and for for many of those years, I felt like God was calling it to be something more. Um, so now it nourishes my soul to be there with others and see God at work in the place and in the people, um, it, moving the place and the people toward greater healing and equity for others in our community. And then uh, I, the other the other um, part of creation that comes to my mind is the Grand River. So. Um, Greater Grand Rapids is all the greater, the lower Grand River watershed. And when I take my walk, um, I have a, I'm blessed to be able to walk five minutes to a park that has a trail that goes to the Grand River. And that's, that's my walk. And so I, I see the Grand River often and am always am mindful of, I mean, I, I wish I could say I was mindful of my baptism, which I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like the appropriate thing to say, but um, I think the bigger, the the context there is I look at the river and I, I realize how majestic it is and how long standing it is and how holy it is and how really, um, you know, temporary I am. And, and yes, that's me remembering my baptism. All right. So me, I mean, I, I like various aspects of nature. So I've always really enjoyed water. Um, and just the calmness of water, and it gives me a lot of peace to just to to go and and, and look at it. And so um, the past, I'm not sure, good while, let's say a year or so, I spent a lot of time um, riding my bike just because I like to ride my bike. And so um, my I always my endpoint is usually um, at the Annapolis Harbor, and so I ride from wherever I am. And I'm, I make a route depending on how far I want to drive, how far I want to ride that day. Usually I'm riding for hours, right? So it's not like it's a, not like it's around the corner. Whatever my route is, I always try to end up at the Annapolis Harbor just so I can sit down for um, five, 10 minutes and relax and look at the water and then jump back on my bike and then come home. And usually, you, you know, you're 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 on trails, you're on these country roads, up and down hills, on these paths, and you see the woods and the trees, and it's it's beautiful, right? It's really picturesque. You can see the, um, I mean, there's no better place to see the leaves 
change colors than on your bicycle on these trails. Because um, you can see, I mean, you can, they turn from green to, you know, brown and red. It's just, just a beautiful array. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, but other things I like, too. I like, I, like, I like hiking. I like taking pictures of mountains. And uh, I'm supposed to say a farm, but, right, but I, I, I like the farm. But <laughs> you can say whatever is true. It's okay. <laughs> I love the water, the beach and the water. It's there you go. We really want to have a conversation about how do we steward the, the this land that's been entrusted to the church, the greater church. Um, we own a lot of land. Um, the church does collectively. Episcopal church, we're you know fairly small denomination, but we we you know, have title to land um, in some pretty remarkable places, some very fertile land, but we have a lot of unused land or underutilized land that can be used, um, you know, for the betterment of the community. And so um, I would just love to hear, you know, what's what's stirring in your soul in terms of your leadership in this movement um, to put our church lands in into um, better usage. And uh, also would love you to reflect on, you know, your work of church lands, uh, you know, capital C, capital L, uh, along with the uh, lowercase church lands. Because I, you know, first met the two of you at Piscine's Ranch, what, three years ago or something like that, when there was this conversation about, um, the, you know, the church religious sector working with particularly poor and disadvantaged uh, farmers, and then sort of the land trust movement and how those uh, come together um, for the common good. I can start with like a little backstory to what you just said, Brian, about how you met us both, is that's really when that March of 2018 gathering, when I heard Daryl um, do Bible study at Piscinus Ranch was a catalyst for me, for me like, I need to work with him. <laughs> um, but how we got to Piscinus Ranch was a conversation that began with myself and Creation Justice Ministries and Interfaith Sustainable Food Collaborative and Presbyterian Hunger Program. Um, I'm thinking that would have been like June of 2016 or 17, I don't remember, um, where I asked if anybody was working on this, how was anybody working on getting new and beginning farmers or marginalized farmers access to religiously held land? And when I asked the group of folks, everybody's like, no. And I thought, okay, well, if anybody, if anybody were, um, working on it, these people would know about it. So I guess I'm going to theorize that people aren't working on this yet. And that doesn't make sense to me because the church, and I say this as an Episcopalian, owns a lot of land. And there are young, new, and marginalized farmers looking for access to land. And why are these two things not being put together? Um, so the Piscinus Ranch gathering grew out of that group of people. And then we added Greenhorns, um, who works primarily with young farmers. And Greenhorns was the one that got us to Pis Piscinus Ranch and got this with working together, we got this collection of people in the room that was a combination of religious leaders of multiple denominations, multiple back, like multiple traditions, I should say, um, Muslim, Jewish, indigenous, I think, um, 
Christian, and then also land access professionals, which I didn't even know there were land access professionals when we got this started. And the way that we organized the gathering included, um, I remember asking Daryl to speak on, I think, community health and justice, and uh, and maybe something else. I, I can't, it was like a very broad umbrella. <laughs> of like, would you please talk about these very broad umbrella things? And Daryl got up and did the most inspired Bible study um, on a story from Second Kings that um, was relevant in, to every single person in the room from every faith tradition and none, because there were people that had no religious background, um, but took that Bible story, made it come alive. And it was... Um, I'll, I'll stop talking soon and let him talk. But at that moment, I was like, I need to work with Daryl and I need to find a way that we can help the church understand their land in the context of the gospel and that it isn't our land to hold. Wow. That's a really flattering story, isn't it? <laughs> I was listening to that, wow. Wow, that, that, that really lifted my spirits. <laughs> for me, so thank you. Thank you for that, Neri. Uh, for me, I, I guess I came into it probably um, certainly certainly underinformed about land and ecology and so forth. My my entree was I just wanted us to be more faithful, just like more like better Christians essentially. I was I was, I was trying to be a better Christian myself and um, and I was you know a missionary in South Sudan and then I was came back home to Baltimore and I want to pass to this church and was like, well what are you? What do you do? I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to kind of help encourage people towards what we would consider faithfulness. Um, I got into conversations about the land, and then we said, "Well, what would what would faithfulness in in um, res with respect to land look like?" And so then, yeah. So then, so then that's kind of how it started. And so if 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 the way we treat the land reflects the way we think of ourselves, I mean, a lot of our land is kind of, we kind of view it as cosmetic. And so we, you know, we mow the lawns every week and we make it look really pretty. Um, or sometimes we have this land that is like, you know, we have acres in the back of the yard and it's just like, it's just there. It's just stuff. It's just like, it's like, it's like, it's like the attic essentially. And it's just a bunch of stuff and no one really, it's underutilized. Um, it's like gifts that are like hidden essentially. And so, you know, we, we, when you think about it critically, you say, well, then, you know, this kind of reflects who we are. So is there a way that we can move ourselves and then also use land as a, as a, as an analogy and as a tool to help us um, do some good in the world, um, but then also, also grow as individuals and, and as a group. I am just stuck on the how to be faithful to the land question. I just love that. How to be faithful to the land. Um, and so here's what I would wonder about. I, I spend a lot of my time visiting churches around the state of Indiana, the Diocese of Indianapolis. I like to tell people is one where we have modest buildings and lots of land and maybe three quarters of our churches. There are very few, only a quarter of our 46 churches are landlocked. But most of them have lots of land. And it's, I think it's a Midwest thing. I'm from the Northeast, so it strikes me as interesting. And so we are doing a program now that helps us think about how we use our buildings more effectively for mission. How might I, I mean, I would love to have advice on how to talk to congregations about how to see their land as missionally relevant in the ways in which you are um, doing ministry. Can you help me with language there? What would you suggest? 
Okay, so I mean, so the way I do it is I use scripture, right? That's my that's my kind of go-to. And so when I begin to talk to so it, yeah, when I it's different when you go to like an interfaith group, and so there's, there's more things to consider. But when I'm talking to just a, a, a Christian group, somebody that kind of holds scripture at, at least as a guideline, um, then we just kind of you know you look at Genesis one, and you know kind of historically, at least at least the way that I kind of came to understand it as a child and into adulthood was that um, the land was for me, right? Like I'm. I have dominion over the land. I essentially dominate the land. And then I just, the land is for me. And it's kind of like, I kind of do what I want to with it, including abuse it. But I think, you know, a, a more thorough understanding is that we are caretakers of the land, of, of God's creation. And therefore, as caretaker, you want to love it. Um, you want to do what's good for it. Um, and so then the question is, like, well, how do I, how do I, and I also want to do good to, to people, right? And so how do I use this asset that I have called land, do good to it, and also do good to people around me? Um, and then that's like, that, that's, that's the, that's the big, that's the floor of the conversation. And then from there, you can imagine the, um, the possibilities. Nice. Thank you. I agree with everything uh, that Daryl said. Uh, no surprise. I would add it. The two things that I would add is kind of first of them is an amen to what he said, because that's what I experienced with the land that is Plain Song Farm. So, you know, that was my family's home a part of it, a big part of it, a house and 10 acres and two barns. And in order for God to turn that into Plain Song Farm, I had to understand that that was not mine. It was God's and I was God's. And I had to act in a way that was in accordance with what I believed God was calling into being on that land, which involved relinquishing a lot of things like control. <laughs> um, and I remember the early days of Plain Song Farm feeling like, I'm just doing everything backwards from everything that, you know, a normal person would do. I hope this works out. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, really it's the grace of, and mercy of God that it, it you know, so far it has. Um, and really the, the integrity and care of my co-founders who um, moved into my house that when it wasn't my house anymore, um, except that it still technically was anyway. I have seen that transformation occur in myself. I've seen it, that transformation occur at the farm. And I've seen what God can do with that transformation in making more transformation in the lives of others. So then the second thing that I would say is, um, so I agree with, and it starts with a foundation on scripture. I would not have done any of that if I had not, you know, trusted that I belonged to Jesus Christ and that the land belonged to Jesus Christ and that transformation was my call as a disciple and that God had a long-term view that was bigger than my long-term view. Um, and I just needed to do the next step, uh, according to what I understood God's long-term view to be. Um, but then what I also noticed, um, after that foundation in scripture, like that willingness, that willingness to take the step is the other piece is 
partners and neighbors beyond yourself be, and honestly beyond the church. I'm going to ask forgiveness for my wonderful friends in the Diocese of Western Michigan for what I'm about to say, because I love my friends in the Diocese of Western Michigan. But the organization that was the most helpful with a starting Plainsong Farm was the Lower Grand Organization of Watersheds. They understood the value of land inherently and its ecological worth. And I would also say like the local small scale farmers understood the value of land ecologically and agriculturally and how land could be used for good. And the church sadly and mysteriously does not always have this knowledge. And we tend, what I see is we tend to look around in our rooms and be like, oh, we don't know how to do this. And actually God has made a lot of people that aren't in our rooms. And, <laughs> and we just need to get out of our rooms and meet those people. And they would be very excited to work with us in the transformation of our land holdings. Um, I want to say one other thing, which is maybe not exactly it's connected to this question. We in the Episcopal Church particularly need to be mindful and attentive to the reality that a lot of our land holdings are connected to our participation in settler colonialism. So how do we understand and honor that lament? Like honor and lament is the, that's what I'm wrestling with right now. Um, in our diocese, uh, the first priest in our diocese came, um, settled in um, part of a contract with the federal government and the Bishop of the Diocese of Michigan to create a landing place for indigenous Americans who refused to participate in Indian removal. So, you know, like I'm learning about James Selkirk and there's, there's some things to honor there. There's also a lot to lament there. And the land that, there was land that was part of that story that's still a mystery as to what happened to that land and why. Not all of our congregations have land stories that are connected to settler colonialism, but a lot of them do. And I think if we're going to create a Christianity that's healing and healthy for future generations, we can't unacknowledge that reality. Um, and we can't ignore it, we can't bypass it, but we also have to recognize that it's not, I say this as a descendant of mostly Europeans, we have to acknowledge we're not going to figure out how this all, how to have that healthy kind of Christianity tomorrow, because um, we were sitting in an inheritance that's 500 years plus in the making. All right, so I kind of went off the field, but I think it's relevant to the conversation we have. Oh no, it's relevant. And and I will say my mom had just called me last week about a verse Shinnecock Indian um, in my family and how the, the news had reported that the itty bitty reservation that's left for their land because they used to own the Hamptons and that's, you know, it's been made to be very wealthy and exclusive and they don't have rights to most of that land. And they are, there's something about how even the land they have is being whittled down. And I just go, oh, so land is, land is important. And we, we tend to just drive through it or we go, we don't think about it. And so the thing that I'm hearing aside from these really helpful um, suggestions to continue to tie it to scripture and something that we hear all the time and needs to be heard perhaps through a different frame as we think about land and stewardship. But the connection that you both have with your experience of the land, which is not at a fast pace, you know, we working the land, cycling through the land, walking our neighborhoods and talking to people who are not in our buildings is 
what we're trying to be about here. And I just think the more we do that, the more we have a different understanding about how the land can nourish a whole community in much better ways than we tend to do it. Definitely. I agree. I, I, yeah, there's something about spending time with the land. I went to my, I went to a high school called Old Mill High School. And uh, Old Mill is in Millersville, Maryland. Uh, Old Mill is moving to, um, I'm not sure the name of the town, but it's it's right, it's it's like a mile away, right? But the land that it's moving on is this huge, it was the it was the only substantial, I say substantial meaning 10, 15 plus acres farm in the greater like 20 mile radius of of, of where this school is. And this farm, you know, when I was a little, when I was a child, my mom would take us there and we would get um, fruits and vegetables and they had a snowball stand and we would get snowballs. Um, and so now my school bought it and they're going to build, you know, they started, they started building the school right where the farm used to be. And so when I, when I arrived by it on my bicycle, um, I lamented because I, I knew what was, what used to be there. And I know that, you know, that it means something. And so I'm happy that this, there's going to be a, a, a nice, pretty school, I guess. I, I mean, I, I want the kids to learn. Um, <laughs> but I, I wish it didn't come at the sacrifice of all of of the greatest farm, of, the, of some of our best farm. I wish it came at the sacrifice of one of these neighborhoods that keep popping up over there. But um, but the neighborhoods are there. The neighborhoods keeps coming, keep coming. And but then there's um, then but the farm is now missing and. Um, for people who know it closely, it, it means something. This is a question, you know, addressed to Nuria, but I know, Daryl, you um, can help us. And this this question really revolves around our church um, and a resolution that Nuria authored um, in Austin in 2000, um, was that 18, um, affectionately known as DO53. And its title is Call for Model Policies for Sustainable Church Land Use. I, I'd like, you know, um, you're, you're a deputy to convention uh, this coming summer. And what would I'd like you just to talk to the deputies and the bishops um, about land use in the Episcopal Church and, um, you know, how we sort of continue to build out from DO 53. You got a bishop here. <laughs> well, I mean, so, this, the bishop we have you here can is practice, you, can practice issues. On the, you can practice on the converted. I'd love to hear from uh, uh, others on this call for this. Um, I have these weird intersecting interests of food, agriculture, justice, ecology, and church policy and governance. <laughs> Um, and so with that, thank you. <laughs> um, but with that, one of the things that I've really come to learn since 2018 is how, um, how much, or I maybe should say little, um, authority general convention has when it comes to, uh, land use in the church. So the Episcopal church, 110 dioceses, 110 standing committees, 110 standing committees, each of which making, I mean, this is, I might be getting some of these numbers wrong. Each standing committee and bishop and diocesan council, or however each diocese is organized, they're the ones actually making decisions about land use in their local places. And so general convention can pass a resolution and did, and maybe will again, because I'm still trying to like, is there another resolution that should follow this up for 20, uh, 2022? I don't know. But 
the rubber meets the road in each diocese and different dioceses are in vastly like different geographical contexts, um, different financial contexts, different mission priority contexts. And so um, I've been pondering because we are probably on the precipice of some significant church closures as a consequence of the combination of ignoring our longstanding issues or just not, not knowing how to wrestle with them effectively. I don't think anybody's ignored them, actually. I just think we haven't known how to wrestle with them effectively. Um, and the pandemic, uh, I anticipate that we'll have a lot of hard questions facing us as church leaders in the next 10 years. And some of those hard questions are going to be around the disposition of property when congregations come to the conclusion that they can't sustain ministry in a particular location anymore. And uh, I really struggle with what are the resources offered to diocesan leaders to help them imagine that, to help them not imagine, to see that the land is God's um, and that it, it, it could be given away for ministry. Um, it could be, um, could be partnered for ministry. New ministries that are rooted in land could be planted um, and have a new practices of Christianity that are actually really old practices of Christianity. Um, because fundamentally, the purpose of purpose of this combination of the gospel and land is the health of all creation, our spiritual health, our ecological health, our physical health for all people. I think I got really far away from your question, Brian. <laughs> that's, that's where I went. This is good, though. I mean, I'm thinking I have so many thoughts. I keep thinking, well, you know, we, we as a church may be out of our depth on this because we haven't talked about it and it is seen as something that's really beyond our field, you know, real estate, land, all of the, I, I'm, cause I'm having these cons, these conversations daily, locally here, as we think about the, cause we talk about the land all the time. And it's so, you know, because I've been in this work with, in this way, and I, I can't see how we can not talk about it. And then I talked to my colleague bishops in other places and I realized, oh, they're looking for other experts because this is not something that we were raised up to do for the most part. And yet for lots of all the reasons you've already named, you and Daryl have already named, Naria, this is a conversation that's actually central and foundational to our faith. And so we're, we're going to have to learn how to have a new conversation and understand it as being something a little bit more urgent than all of the other urgencies that keep us from talking about it because um, it, it, you know, it's easy to shift it to the bottom. And yet uh, we are over the cliff in terms of excess land, redundant properties, all of these things that the Church of England had been writing and talking about in the early 1990s when I was a grad student. And so I think, it, it, you know, the, the next best time to, you know, yesterday is today. Let's get going with it. So this conversation, I hope, will ignite that conversation. Yeah, I I think this is really important. And there's two things that I just want to throw into the mix. And one is, and I think, you know, you guys have both, Nuri and Bishop Jennifer both mentioned it, which is to go outside and find the experts. We're really bad at that. Um, as a denomination as a whole. I mean, I'm sure there are pockets that are really healthy at that. So if that's your pocket, don't take offense. Um, if you're listening, right? I'm not talking about you, but there are pockets. Uh, I was part of an evangelism conference this past um, September that a tiny church, I mean, I, I'm talking like a 
30 person church in Vermont put on for the entire, for anybody because they did it hybrid and they didn't try to figure out how to do the hybrid part themselves. They found a technology company, right? A, a AV company who knew how to do that part. And that's what they spent the bulk of their budget on was hiring professionals to come in and solve this problem for them. So they didn't have to buy equipment they're not going to use again. They didn't have to train people, right? They, they said, this is beyond us, but there are experts in this field and we can partner with them. And because of that, they wrapped in another community into that conference. And the guys who were on site running the, the technology for us actually took in a lot of what we were talking about and came up and commented to us, right? And think of that like when you when you go outside your sphere of knowledge it's not just um it's not weak it's it's not whatever that our our you know that our hang-ups about that are it's actually a tool for evangelism right to go outside and partner with other people in the community who actually know what they're doing in different areas whether it's buildings or grounds or those sorts of things so one thing i just want to encourage people put out the call who are the who are the real estate people in your community in your parish um who are you know brian's always talking about master gardeners who are the master gardeners who are right like put those calls out and not just in your parish but in your community like your actual community call your extension agency but the other thing i want to say is that um there are a group of people that that need a lot of talking they need to talk a lot and they need to go deep into these things and they need to research all of them and that's really great and then there's those of us who just want to be told what to do just i know this is something that needs to happen i don't want to read 600 papers on it i don't want to read all the reports i don't want to know all the data i just know it's important so give me my action steps there has to be a place for those people, right? <laughs> like, um, and so, so, right? So, so I would just encourage all of those who are really into the depth of this work to also help maybe give us a cheat sheet. Like I just need a one pager on action steps that I can take locally. And it might be number one, call your extension agency. <laughs> right? Like it might be number two, find all the realtors in your area. I don't know what those action steps are, but I would just, on behalf of all the, um, the, the action taking people and not the research making people in the, in the church, um, to ask those of you who are doing that work, um, to, to help us, help us help you, um, by just giving us some really clear steps. <laughs> and, so um, I, you know. <laughs> go ahead. So Brian. I think we should, well, I think you need to, people need to call the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins. You know, I bet they've got a lot of ideas about things revolving around food. And I know someone there, too. <laughs> you do? You know somebody? Yeah. Brian knows somebody <laughs> everywhere. Doc, doc, Dr. Dariel Harris. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the Center does actually know a lot about food, and we put a lot of... Um, material out around around food and food production and some of the challenges and some of the some of the potential solutions and so yeah so i mean please please do visit us call us and 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 we will um engage with you um as as much as possible for sure like talking to other people is definitely helpful without question right and so when we went when we met at piscina's ranch we were there talking to people from land trust and they gave us a bunch of ideas and that was that was really, really helpful. Um, and they brought me into a new, gave me a new language um, to, to think and to research myself. 
Um, but one of the things I, I try not to outsource is the kind of like the purpose. And so I, I may outsource some technology, but I'm not going to outsource like the, you know, the, the, the agenda of the meeting or something like that. Quick jump in um, with a couple concrete things to suggest. One thing that I would name is when I was on the legislative committee, um, when we heard DO 5-3 in 2018, we received testimony that there was no agency in the church that held a land inventory. And it was astonishing to me. And then we confirmed that um, there are a number, be, maybe because our polity is so distributed in its authority, um, and we've been around for a long time, unless your diocesan office at some point in the past made a priority of understanding the land holdings in your diocese, you don't have one. And that's true for a number of bishops. Um, they'll know what their buildings might be, because um, there's a list of those that have to get visited with congregants. In them. Um, but it doesn't necessarily go together that there's also a list of land holdings that the diocese is responsible for, which I feel like astonished by this. We are a church that is, I mean, my constitution, our constitution in my diocese literally lists off the 33 counties that we have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel in. So that's 30, and I would imagine every diocese of the church has a list of the counties that is they're responsible to proclaim the gospel in because that's how we think of, that's a, the way, the pattern of thinking that we inherited from our English ancestors, ancestors in this tradition is the parish mentality. You're not just responsible for a congregation, you're responsible for a location. And so the congregations, I mean, the constitutions have those specific locations. So maybe because we thought we were responsible for all this stuff, we didn't really keep track of what particular portion of it we had ownership, like legal ownership of. It's probably important to, for every diocese to actually understand the land that it holds, because only once you understand the comprehensive land holdings in your diocese can you make a strategic plan for mission and ministry. What of these land holdings are appropriate for agricultural use? So what of these lands are going to be appropriate for stewardship of biodiversity? What of these lands... Um, can be used and held in a way that brings health to all of God's creation. You can't ask those questions as a diocese before you have a sense of what your land holdings are. So that's one thing that is a specific concrete step. And then the other thing I would say is we need people who are theologically rooted in the reality that the earth is the Lord's to run for standing committees, because the standing committees are going to be making decisions about what land is to be held and what land is to be sold. And if there's only people there that are looking at land from a financial viewpoint, then all of those decisions will be made with financial priorities in mind. And there, we need multiple perspectives in those dialogue. That, and there's going to be a lot of dialogue about how we handle land holdings in the next 10, 15 years. Okay, that's yeah, it. And we, I just added a list for future episodes, something to the future episode list, and uh, to talk directly about these things and then market that podcast to every deputy and every bishop uh, who will be gathering in Baltimore. Maybe it needs to be more than one podcast. I was just, just about to say, we need a part two for sure on this conversation because it's too essential and we are you know, barely scratching the surface here. Yeah, so. and we're running out of time. So 
any final thoughts or um we're going to ask you guys to send us a list of resources that you would like to share that we can put in the show notes um and you can send us as many links as you want it's okay i know nuria's face I know you listeners can't see it, but she just both got excited and overwhelmed by that thought. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, but any final um, thoughts or or words of wisdom or encouragement to folks who are listening? Uh, I'll say mine. I'll say mine because Nuria just said something that was super duper important um, that I want to echo, which is that um, when you were making decisions that finances can't be the only thing that we're considering. And so much of the, just the American psyche is we make decisions based on finances. Um, and so when we, when it comes to our land, we just, we end up doing the same thing, but that, that is not the, that is not the biblical or, or, or the Christian economy. Um, and so the Christian economy is kind of rooted in something else. It's, it's intended to be rooted in, in goodness um, and so, so we're, we're looking for what is good, not what is um, financially expedient. And so if we can begin to make decisions that way, then uh, the, the world would be different. Our, our parishes, there's another reason why I like Nuria so much, because she's so rooted in, in, the, in, the, in the Episcopal Church, where I'm kind of non-denominational, running around loosey-goosey, but it's good to be rooted. Um, so, so, but yeah, so we're, it's the parish, we're, we're responsible for the place, um, not just for our congregation and the place needs us desperately. Nuria, any final thoughts or? I'm so grateful that this conversation happened and this is, um, not the beginning and it's not the end and it's not the middle. I don't know what it is, but it's a step on the journey and it's a journey all of us are on with every breath we take and it's the journey of faithfulness. So I'm really grateful to be in community with all of you as we seek the way that God has for us. Well, thank you both so much for being here, for your wisdom, for your ministry, for your heart, um, for the land and all of creation. So we're grateful for y'all. All right, everyone, that wraps up this episode of Spade, Spoon, and Soul. If you want to connect with us, you can generally find us hanging out on the Agrarian Ministries of the Episcopal Church. I know it's a mouthful, but you just put in Agrarian Ministries Episcopal, you'll find us. We have a Facebook page group where you can chat with us or you can email us at spade spoon soul podcast at gmail i want to thank our producer um derek weston and um also ryan lee our musician who you get to listen to as we come in and as we go out and then also to jay sidebottom who contributed the beautiful artwork that we have for our podcast this is a initiative of the Good News Garden um, uh, movement within the Episcopal Church, who happens to be our first sponsor. And if any of you else out there want to sponsor us, let us know. Well, until next time, we hope that you get a chance to get out into the land wherever you are and find a way to connect your soul to your spade or your spoon, the land, all of it. And we'll, we'll be in touch next time. Take care, everybody.